Welcome to the debate at Newsweek. I'm Andrew Tallman. Today we're talking about cancel culture. Is it okay? Is it ever not okay? What are the limits? And also the role of AI in our culture and in the workplace. Today I'm joined by Ernest Owens. He is the editor-at-large for Philadelphia Magazine and author of The Case for Cancel Culture. And Mark Davis, host of the nationally syndicated Mark Davis Show and town hall columnist. Gentlemen, welcome to the debate. Good to be here. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Well, let's start with you, Ernest. You have the most interesting book title I've seen all year. Uh, I have read a little bit. I've done some of the uh, read some of your interviews and read a little bit about that. I had not read the book itself. I'm very curious. So let's just start with your kind of overview gloss. What is cancel culture from your point of view? And why do you think it's a good thing? Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. This is exciting. In my eye, cancel culture is not a far left, far right, Democratic, Republican. It's a tool that every human uses. We all cancel in our livelihoods. And I define cancel culture in my book as an act in which a person decides to cancel a person, place, or thing that they view as being detrimental to their livelihood. So it's not like, you know, food critics or movie critics. It's not an issue of taste. This is something deeper, right? So I love to use what I call the Amazon example, which is basically cancel culture in this regard and what is not cancel culture. So it would not be cancel culture if you said I would not support Amazon because they are bad with their service and I didn't get my package on time. That's a personal you know, matter of taste and preference and it's objective. But if you said I don't support Amazon because I don't think they give their workers a fair livable wage and you know, I support unions then that's cancel culture. And it's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's objective in how we view it. And so that is what, um, you know, inspired me to write this book, because I think so many powerful people have hijacked what cancel culture really is about, which is seeking accountability and being able to actively express dissent. And they've used it as a way to act like it's a oogie boogie man, a dog whistle for anyone who wants to speak out. So let me kind of rephrase what you said, and I want to see if you agree with if if I'm expressing it accurately, even though I'm doing it in a different way. Um, If I go to a shop and I like the taste of their food, let's say it's a restaurant and I go back there again and again, and then one day the food is not good. And then maybe the next time the food is not good. And I decided to stop going there. That's not canceling. That's just consuming or not consuming a product. And if I tell other people that it's good or bad, Uh, likewise, that's not canceling. That's just product reviews. But if I go to the cake shop and all things seem to be going fine or the restaurant or whatever, and all things seem to be going fine. And then one day the, uh, the person behind the counter, let's imagine it's the owner, uh, or at the restaurant, whatever says, you know, Hey, I'm glad you like the pizza. Also, I hate Jews. Uh, oh, well, all right. And now we've got a problem, right? And he says it one time, maybe he says it two or three times. And I decide, man, I love the pizza but can't stand the anti-Semitism, and I decide not to go there. Uh, that would be personal canceling if I decide to tell other people about this incident and to stop patronizing him. That would be activist canceling or something along these lines. Do I Am I tracking with you on the idea? Absolutely. You, you've okay. mastered the fact of knowing the distinction between personal taste and something of a larger movement, and I think that was a good example, totally. All right, uh, Mark, before we get into, you know, whether that kind of response to what you encounter in, uh, you know, uh, for example, in a restaurant is a good thing or not. Any disagreement with the definition, feel comfortable with the way we've laid out the train? 
No, I'm really, really glad that 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 Eugene, uh, that Ernest found your example uh, fitting because I was listening to it. And as Ernest laid out his beginning definition, I thought, OK, this is going to be even more interesting than I thought, because uh, the marketplace, people in the marketplace saying, here's what I like, here's what I don't like, here's what I admire, here's what I resent. And doing so publicly, especially in the crazy world of social media, that's all absolutely fine. Definitions of cancel culture may differ, and I did take a, a brief uh, trip through through uh, through Ernest's book, and I found it really provocative, and he makes his case really, really interestingly. So, it, let's take that uh, restaurant that you're talking about, and let's instead of having the proprietor say, "Here's your pizza, and I hate Jews," which would be stone cold anti-Semitism, and I think he would deserve to be called out in the marketplace for that, and maybe people need to wonder if they need to buy pizza from that guy or not. How about, how about this? Uh, the pizza guy has a uh, a Trump poster behind the, the cash register. So it's not outright stone cold anti-Semitism. It's not outright anything except a, a political uh, figure whom he likes. And everybody goes nuts and they protest him and they and they don't just say, hey, I don't like Trump or I voted for Biden. So I ain't getting my pizza from there. They are suggesting this guy ought to be shut down for that political view. That's the bar for cancel culture that I've set, which I don't think any freedom loving person should embrace. Yeah. So first of all, would it seems like that would fit your definition of cancel culture as a tactic, Ernest. My, I guess the question Mark's asking is, would that be, in your mind, a legitimate use of canceling somebody? Yeah, it is. Um, it isn't my necessarily my personal favorite, but in my book, it would definitely fit it because it's about values and symbolism and you know, it's subjective about what those values and symbols can mean, especially at the time. Right. You know, in my book, I talk about reading the room, right. Knowing the time and place of what those symbols mean. Um, you know, a Donald Trump poster in 2005 would have meant something different than what it meant in 2016. And so there is statements to be made about that in context. I mean, even the way we talk about Rudy Giuliani, Rudolph Giuliani was Times person of the year this year. It would mean something different about Time magazine, I think, than what it would mean in 2001. And so I think all of that matters. And I think that we spend so much time looking at we victimize people who are canceled in ways that I feel like isn't always warranted. You know, that person who made that decision, are we stripping them of their agency? Didn't they make a decision? Didn't they make a choice? Are we acting as though they didn't take a bold stride? You know, when Colin Kaepernick decided to take a knee, I don't, you know, pity him for what he did because he knew what he was doing and he took a bold stance. You know, I think of Paul Robeson, that that famous, you know, black actor back in the day in the, in the 1930s and 40s. You know what happened to him in his career was 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 upsetting. But what he did and what he decided to do was a risk. So I think sometimes when we talk about cancel culture, we act as though those people that are being canceled in that way that you know, pity them or whatever. But sometimes people make deliberate decisions and there's consequences for those decisions, whether we like them or not. And so I look at council culture as being something that is subjective in that way, where we, we can't always say it's a bad thing or this person or this innocent person or it's a mistake. We, 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 we use these words, you know, and that's the humanity of us to do that. But some of this is not mistakes. These are not mistakes. People make deliberate choices. What a superb landscape uh, that, that you just laid out. Um, and on a case by case basis, what happened to Paul Robeson was objectively terrible. 
What happened to Colin Kaepernick is debatable. The people who support the stance he took say that he's been horribly victimized. The people who are mortified by the stance he took say he deserved what he got. That's a debate that you can have. So, and I know that these definitions will vary from person to person, but I would think that we should all be able to identify examples where someone has been victimized who should not have been in an overall way where they were denied the opportunity to speak at all. Catching consequences for saying bold things, hey, in the modern world, you're going to catch hell if you say X, Y, Z. And I think that kind of proves that the system works. But when people go, you're ratcheted up to 11 and say, because of what you said, because I disagree with what you said, you should lose your platform for saying it. That's a dangerous road. And I think that's that's kind of the that's kind of the question I want to get at, Ernest. Is and you know it se- it seems to me like like my picture of you know a tolerant democracy, particularly a capitalist one, is a very important part of this conversation to me. If I decide not to buy a product because the product is bad, that's exactly what a capitalist uh, free market system is supposed to be about. But if I decide not to buy again, back to the pizza example, I don't want to buy the pizza because I don't agree with the religious views of the person who's selling me the pizza, I'm undermining the purpose of capitalism, which is to separate people's private views from their merchandise. You know, um, people who have boycotted uh, big stores because they don't do enough Merry Christmasing. I always thought that was a terrible idea. Go to the store because they have the best merchandise. And if they don't express your religious beliefs, who cares? That That's kind of the concern I have is that, it turns the proper response to bad or good merchandise or production or service into punishing or rewarding people on the basis of whether they agree with me or not. Your thoughts. This is delicious because I'm going to ask you to a question. I think it's going to be so much fun because I, I love this because when I use this question, it's the best way to explain cancel culture. And I think this is the part where I have everyone in a pickle. All right. Do you two support abolishing the police? Of course not. I assume you mean just getting rid of them entirely, but sure. Generally, sure. Yeah. No, no. Okay. Well, I mean, all the cases of police brutality, people being wrongfully extrajudicially killed by the police. There's so much injustice with the money and the wealth. Why do you believe that we should not get rid of the police? I'll play along because while there are bad actors to be found in any human enterprise, the police included, the better solution is to punish real brutality while leaving alone the praiseworthy protective value that the police can have when they do their job correctly. Yeah, I'd say rules and exceptions. Like the general Mm -hmm. truth is that they accomplish a purpose. And when there are exceptions, when they're not accomplishing that purpose, you absolutely and ferociously, quite frankly, have to prosecute them or at least fire them if they're not up to the task. Sure. And that's my response to the cancel culture. It's not a perfect system. There are some checks and balances that happens, but I think that there's a greater good in it as a democratic tool. There are some people that's going to weaponize cancel culture and some bad actors. But at the end of the day, it allows a lot of people to have a voice to dissent. You know, cancel culture is what liberated a person like me. I'm a black gay millennial that 50 years ago or more not been able to a platform like this to be in a space like this to share opinions like this without persecution and whereas there are still institutions and places that would still try to cancel me for being who i am in this country because there's no equality act i believe that the ability to counter that is better than not for people like myself and so i look at council culture as It is like any other institution in our society. It has imperfections, 
but it serves a better purpose when done in the right way. So I guess my pushback on that is it seems that it's sort of there are certain cases where what people might do is so morally obnoxious that it makes sense to try to marginalize them from society or the economy or something else. But so much of the time, what people are doing is just different from what I believe, or maybe I think what they're doing is quite bad, but nevertheless, I want to protect them in their right or their ability to do it. And so what I love about a free economy, for example, and this is why, because it's so relevant to the issue of like boycotts, for example, is that I can separate the product from the person. And so if I'm given two equal products in the marketplace, I look at the one product, let's say it comes from a conservative, you know, somebody who aligns with me and the other product comes from somebody who's a liberal, black, gay man, like you're selling the product. Okay. I would actually more likely buy from the person who's unlike me because I want to advocate for diversity and variety and tolerance and not use viewpoint as the basis of my decision. I think that that is coming from a point of privilege. (laughs) I don't think that's how most people think. I don't think that's the reality of our society. I think that we are actually making a lot of decisions based on our views and values in ways that we don't recognize. We are not honest about that. I think we may not recognize it because it's so subconscious. It's not subconscious every day. Like, why do I wear certain things that I wear? Why do I buy certain products? Why do I do I not support certain things? Like, I'm very intentional not supporting Chick-fil-A. I can't do it. I just can't. I bet you the chicken might be good, but I can't support it's, them. It's really good. <laughs> which, which, is, which is fine, which is yeah, absolutely right, right. fine. Which any, is fine. Any individuals, any individual decision to go to Chick-fil-A or not go to Chick-fil-A is their own personal marketplace choice. Right. But, uh, to, but I want to say that the collectiveness is that you have to look at that. What these pro- these products represent is bigger than just personal preference and taste. And I think that's what, Folks from marginalized communities have known all along, right, that the, the perpetuation of Chick-fil-A and its success normalizes the conversation of whether or not LGBTQ people should be given rights or not. That we live in a society that continues to have it, want to have it both ways, that we are OK with second class citizenship at the expense of our own desires and tastes. And so what should happen to Chick-fil-A? So, so what should happen to this company that un- unapologetically supports a biblical view of marriage? Is that just another way to feel that disagrees with you? Or, or should there be some overall market punishment for them for holding that view? You're, you're putting the car before the horse. You're missing one important part. It's not about just ideas. Ideas lead to actions. They invest in anti-LGBTQ institutions and and government support and issues that are trying to lobby to stop my ability to be married. I'm a proud black gay man. I'm married. Mm -hmm. They are supporting institutions that is trying to stop my ability to live the life that I live. So if they just had their opinion and what should happen to them, not only holding a view, but holding an investment, they have an investment. Two things should happen. They should either divest from funding institutions that discriminate or they should just cease to exist. In my opinion, I wouldn't want an institution like that to exist because it's, it's impeding on my livelihood. Then what would you say to the Christian Chick-fil-A fan who says that, and this is not my view, that, that, that your view 
is deleterious to the biblical view of marriage, which is central to, right. to, to, to a lot of people's beliefs. As soon as we, because I think the point at which we have the back and forth, which is great, here's this view, here's that view, here's why I disagree, here's why I disagree, is great. But the point where we start telling other private companies that they should divest or they shouldn't exist, what kind of fascist nonsense is that? Let Ch- If Chick-fil-A loses business because of the views they hold, if the business just dries up, because there is 90% revulsion to their political views, then that's the marketplace having it say. Uh, Having Ernest say they should somehow do things that are their business, that's a whole other matter. And I wouldn't tell a liberal company to turn around to my point of view, so please. Well, they do it. The government does it. The government wants to ban books. You have legislators like Ron DeSantis banning books, saying don't say gay. This is already happening. Everyone's already doing it. The books that are being banned are books that seek to sexualize young people and also school board by school board. But but Ernest, I'm I'm curious if there are any sort of places where you wouldn't advocate for the use of canceling. And again, you know, take me as an example. Okay, you know, I'm a I'm a white Christian male conservative. Um, Would you advocate on behalf of me trying to hold accountable a company that advocates for values that I disagree with? Would you think that it's okay for me to not shop there, not buy from them and advocate for all of my conservative, let's say, white friends uh, to not buy there? I mean, is, is the cancel culture tactic in your mind, acceptable, regardless of who's using it. Absolutely. It's a democratic tool and everyone's doing it. it I, everyone's doing it. And, and I believe that, I love, by the way, I love the consistency of that answer. I very, yeah, thank you. It's a, no, everybody, everybody is doing it. Like in my book, I talk about how conservatives cancel. I talk about how progressives cancel. Everyone's doing it. And I believe that that's what makes it work. It doesn't matter what I personally think about why you're choosing to cancel. But I believe that we as a society, we duke it out. We win in the culture war. Someone wins, right? Reagan's era had a moment and conservatives, you know, after the countercultural movement came in and dominated in the 80s, they won. They were doing it. And then it went crazy. And I talk about the history, like conservatives had a moment, right, where they were canceling and they were winning the public's viewpoint on the issue. And then things got a little weird. Right. And then <laughs> liberals came and then liberals began to have their moment. They had their swing and, and it was going in their direction. And then Trumpism came and things went in a different direction. And now things are going in a different direction. But that's how it works. We, 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 we as a society combat each other with issues. We combat each other with the voice, the dissent Whoever fights it, you know, there was a time where society thought that women should not have credit cards, that black people shouldn't be able to have all of their First Amendment rights, that queer people shouldn't be allowed to marry. And the people who wanted to seek to cancel those things, they won that in the 50s. And then there was movements and boycotts and protests and the people sought to cancel those Jim Crow laws and rules. And then they said, we're taking it back. Then conservatives came back again and they had a moment and they up the ante and they fought and dissolved to cancel things. And then the liberals came back and said, let's fight it out again. And that's what we do as a society. We, we evolve, we, we, we elevate. And through this discourse, we learn things about each other. We, we take the things we like 
and we spit the things out that we don't, our kids and our and our families evolve in their thinking. And sometimes they get better and sometimes they get worse. But that's what society does. That's what a democracy do. And I believe that there are so many people right now that's upset about council culture because now more than we've ever seen in American society is that more people in American society has the ability to publicly dissent more than they ever had. 20 I, years I ago, actually agree, I agree, I agree with that, that, which is concern. great. The people, which the is people great. who are at least some of the people who are complaining about canceling are finding that they're the ones not able to win at it. <laughs> they're the ones that's who are right. losing at it. And that's the problem. We need to take a real quick break. But when we come back, I want to continue talking about this, because to me, this is really fundamental to questions about tolerance, plurality, diversity. You know, what is legitimate social protest strategy? What is not? All of those things are tied up here. And I love the conversation. We're talking with Ernest Owens and with Mark Davis. We'll be back on the debate. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to the debate. I'm Andrew Tallman, joined today by Mark Davis and Ernest Owens, and we're having a pretty robust conversation about what is cancel culture, whether canceling things is appropriate, legitimate. Uh, Ernest was just making the very eloquent point that this simply is how people behave. Uh, People like the things that are like them and reinforce their views, and they tend to spend in those ways. And go the other way on opposite things and they tend to use their power when they have it. And when you're in power, whatever means you have is the one you use. And when you're out of power, you'll (laughs) you'll use any means you have to get back into it. I tend to think that this is actually the problem is that what we ought to be doing is trying to find a way to say, look, I totally disagree with what you stand for, but that's okay. I will totally protect your right to stand for it. And I won't use anything but my words to try to persuade you. I won't use economic coercion. I won't try to use legal coercion. I won't try to use social coercion. I will just use words. And at the end of the day, if we disagree, so be it. I can live with that. Um, Mark, I know we haven't heard from you in a minute, but I wanted to give you a chance. No, to it was great. Your I, was, thoughts. I, was, I was thoroughly enjoying uh, the litany of examples that Ernest gave. And some of them seemed to me to be either not so much cancellation as enlightenment laws that we had that were terrible. So we got rid of them rights that we denied. So we now, you know, the women to vote, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the various civil rights struggles and that we it's, it's an enlightenment path that, that we've been on. Let me try to thread the needle with an example, Andrew, that you gave a few minutes ago on a, what seems like a genuinely insignificant thing, but it provides an example uh, the perceived war on Christmas. You remember when people could walk into a store and, and, and it was a big deal, whether they said Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. I had I, listeners, I had I had Great. listeners who said 
that 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 store clerk told me happy holidays. That must mean she hates Christmas. And I'd say, stop it, stop it, stop it. Maybe it just means she doesn't know whether you're Christian or Jewish or agnostic, and she just wants to cover all the bases. So I told right. people to lighten up about that. However, mm-hmm. when a when a big box store had Christmas trees, 500 Christmas trees, and the sign out front called them holiday trees. I gave them the what for for a week, not because I wanted them to be shut down, not because, you know, that store should not exist. I think that would have been genuine cancel culture, but to rather tell people, you know what, maybe you want to have a word of the manager to not be afraid of the word Christmas. Holiday trees was a ridiculous example of Christmas phobia, and I think they deserve to be called out for it. In my book, I talk about that, but I expand upon the cancellation around the red cup at Starbucks. Mm, Okay. We forget that there was levels of council culture. I remember um, Megyn Kelly was debating about Jesus being black or white or around Christmas or Santa being black or white. And there was this debate with people trying to boycott and cancel Starbucks for the red cup because Starbucks didn't call it a Christmas themed cup. And this is in my chapter about conservatives canceling that that war on Christmas you know, you stopped at a point where you just said, look, I have an agreement about it, whatever, whatever. But there were some people on the conservative on the on the right that really were, you know, we got to boycott the cups. We got to boycott Starbucks. So it's it's extremism in that, you know, and I think that's where I'm getting to is that, you know, to some extent, you know, you can win those wars. And sometimes you look silly, like when, you know, um, I wrote about um, Jerry Farwell trying to canceled the Teletubbies because he thought Tinky Winky was promoting homosexuality. Silly, silly. (laughs) There was a soft drink can. I I won't misstate the the brand Uh that had one nation dot, 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 indivisible. And I thought, Harry, and it's like, gee, what's missing in there? Under God was not on the (laughs) can. And and people went nuts. I thought, oh, it's a godless soft drink company. And I said, you know, can we, uh, with so many real things to fight over, does this really make sense? So, but here's the thing. So if, if we could all have examples of people who we think take it too far, I give to them the latitude to take it as far as you want. You might take it too far. You think I do. Everybody just get in there and say what you feel. Yes, I'm fine with that. I think that's, that's how democracy works. But I also believe that we as a society do have the ability of discernment on both sides that we can see in our own camps where things are like, okay, that's going too far. Like I see progressives sometimes where they make large leaps on what they want to cancel. And I'm like, well, like for example, PETA, right? I understand PETA's interest in stopping animal cruelty, but the idea of throwing like, you know, red paint on fur at fashion shows or when they make certain offensive metaphors of the injustice to black people to the injustice of an animal. And they make these big leaps and comparisons and things. I think that's when they turn people off. And I think that's why they have struggled in certain cases to appeal because some of the ways that they've gone about canceling and the approach has turned people off. So I do believe that you could have a good core message, but how you do it will determine whether people rally behind or not. Lots of tactics are counterproductive, right? Even though you're very enthusiastic about them, they're not persuasive to the people you're trying to win to your side. If I read okay. you correctly, and, I, and please correct me if I get anything wrong, your position would be something like this, uh, that it is perfectly normal and right 
for people to use uh, economic coercion, social coercion as a form of trying to expand the dominion of their virtue set, their value set, because that is how people always behave. And so those who are being labeled as cancelers today are simply doing that in the way that everybody else has always done that in the past. This is normal human behavior and therefore fine. I w- and of course, I disagree with this, but I think that's your view. What I wonder is, do you think that when I refrain from trying to express my viewpoint by coercing people economically or socially, do you think I'm doing something morally wrong by not using my power? Do you think there's an obligation to try to get people to do what we want and to adhere to my viewpoint in you know their business or whatever? I think it depends on how serious this impacts your life, whatever that thing is. You know, I think about in my book, I talk about uh, hashtag me too, hashtag new R. Kelly. Um, R. Kelly was the big R&B superstar for 25 years, was raping and abusing women in the industry. I mean, federal charges, Rico, he was running an entire operation. There were several women and families whose lives were impacted by this man's disgusting work, his behavior. And people in the industry knew about it and they kept it a secret. They were quiet about it. People was getting paid off. All kinds of things were happening behind the scenes. And there was so much private in-house things happening. And in my book, I talk about when cancel is the last resort. I believe that most people don't immediately gut reaction want to cancel. They oftentimes do so after several things happen. Most people are not impulsively just going, uh, cancel. Most people have considered other things before they do. And you so when we get to that with me, it's not good. I'm sorry. There's levels. And I also talk about how it's based on privilege on who gets to decide that. Right. Um, depending on how marginalized you are in a situation and what is the thing you're canceling. But in this situation, these black women weighed the thoughts of like, we're going to take down a very famous, powerful black man. We don't want the implications to look like we're just taking down someone powerful. But they had literally no other choice but to call for the boycotts and call them out publicly. And as a result, that led to him being convicted and rightfully locked up. What I'm saying here is that in those types of cases, they felt like that's what they had to do to actually seek justice. You may not feel like financial divestment might be enough. Maybe the issue, you know, we all love a bunch of issues, but maybe an issue may not be that detrimental to you that you feel like that is where you need to go with your cancel culture. There are things that I I think in my personal life I support, but I don't necessarily feel like I need to go outside of City Hall and protest every day for it. The the R. Kelly example and the Kevin Spacey example that you write about in your book are are examples of such repulsive behavior that we can all generally understand why people might suffer a marketplace consequence. And that example of those ladies who came after R. Kelly as a last resort is a superb last resort example. Reflexive use of cancel culture, I'm afraid, is reaching pandemic levels. Let a conservative speaker be announced on some college campuses and we're done for the day. That is a new fascism that exists on campus after campus after campus. It is a disease. And when liberals like Bill Maher start to call it out, I think this is something where all good hearted people who believe in freedom, who believe in an exchange of ideas, need to step up against that kind of silencing. Sometimes as someone, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, got my ma- my bachelor's, got my master's from USC Annenberg, both 
school of people who consider liberal and they both have gotten certain speakers out. But I would argue, what are they saying in those those spaces? Because it's not all conservatives. Let's be clear. Not all conservatives are not being able to talk on college campuses. Some of these individuals are like, I don't think someone like you would be banned off a college campus. But. Well, but somebody like Ann Coulter would. I bet if DeSantis were coming somewhere that, that the earth yeah, would stand wildly absolutely. out of the tournament. I would support that. You would support if Ron DeSantis comes to speak at a campus. There are two ways to go. You can protest outside and say this guy's wrong on every issue. Stand up. I agree. I would do that. Right I would do, do that. that. Uh, very good. What would you say about people who say, Ernest, that's not enough. We need to disrupt his speech. We need to 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 raise holy hell and argue that he should not be allowed to speak on our campus. What would you think of those people? So personally, this is, again, approaches are different, but my style would have been, I think I would have protested outside. I would have wrote a strong, stern letter to the editor or put an op-ed in my school paper. Fantastic. And I would have probably sent you know, information to the community at large to say, these are our thoughts. That's what I would have personally done. But I do know that there are in certain cases, depending on the nature, it will change for some people. But I, I, I would just say it just really depends on the context of what that person is going there to talk about and where they're speaking at, because all of that has context. If that just happened in Philadelphia. He went to the Union League. He got the Abraham Lincoln Award. People didn't protest and disrupt them inside, but they stood out there and protest. Elected officials did. And, you know, some people decided to divest from the Union League, cancel their memberships okay. because they didn't like it. And okay. some people okay. yelled cancel culture. But I felt like that to me was the was a good route. But I hear what you're saying. But I think. Yeah. And one of, one of the things that I, I think I hear us all agreeing about, and I always like to look for those points of agreement, is there are clearly some positions, points of advocacy, actions that we would all agree those people should be ostracized, economically leveraged, perhaps socially leveraged because of that. There are there's some point at which everybody agrees <laughs> that that's horrific. Um, and at some point we throw people in jail. Right. And the question is where and to how much and to what degree are you obligated? Because if somebody's not standing up against, for example, severe racial injustice in a system, there's something wrong with you. And, you know, I would be on your side that that's inappropriate. You ought to be you shouldn't be participating in that. We're going to switch topics a little bit, but before we do, I want to get the final word from chat GPT. No kidding. We have been playing with the AI the last couple of days and chat GPT is horrifyingly good at coming up with anything you ask it. We asked chat GPT for the pro con on cancel culture. And here's what the AI told us in favor of cancel culture. It's holding people accountable. It's creating social progress and it's empowering marginalized voices against cancel culture and this is the highlight not the explanation it gives more a nu nuanced view against cancel culture chat gpt says lack of due process where people lose things and are unable to defend themselves against allegations you create a mob mentality and you have a chilling effect on free speech with that we'll switch gears come back in just a moment on the debate Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
Welcome back to the debate. Uh, we're talking now about AI in the workplace. Chat GPT, I find captivating and horrifying all at the same time. Just a quick question. I'm curious. Uh, Ernest Owens, have you played with the Chat GPT at all? Absolutely. I'm an adjunct professor at Cheney University, the nation's first HBCU. And um, my students, you know, we used to do Turn It In. It's called Turn It In, where you used to check for plagiarism. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm having to do this now because they've gotten this, this technology has gotten sharper and better. We should cancel this, by the way. Um, <laughs> That's it what I'm just talking be about. Open source, like every question and answer chat GPT has ever done should be open searchable for college professors. I don't know how else you solve it. Agreed. I, I've had to do it. I've had to look at things. And um, it's funny because what I do now is that every quiz I do, I use it, see their answers and then put it down. And I compare Mm-hmm. student stuff. And I even as a professor, I think one of the things I also do now, I make my students cite references to the material that they're reading. Mm-hmm. So you, you just can't just blindly do a general like they get like what I call one essay question where they might, you know, give their personal take, but they have to pull from a life example or something about them. And if they're using any other questions, I'm telling them to cite your sources, make references, examples. So I just think what it has to do, it just has to make, you know, if, if this technology is getting more sophisticated, we as professors and academics who's doing this stuff, we have to be more sophisticated. It's been a lot of lacks in the academy, a lot of laziness with the lack of rigor and these types of technologies and the markets that have created them have basically exploited that, you know, especially I, during I, the pandemic. I feel largely about chat GPT the way I feel about dating. Uh, I don't teach anymore and I'm glad <laughs> I don't have to deal and, with this. And problem. Isn't this isn't this right. an example he, hearing Ernest's story, his testimony from yeah. the classroom. It's chilling. And here's it's like an episode of Black Mirror come to life. That's a wonderful yeah. series with it where every episode is about technology and how wonderful and whiz bang and exciting it is. And yet how it can come back and bite you in the butt in terrible ways from the Internet itself to smartphones, uh, to the chat bots now, it, isn't it that it's everything is a coin with two sides. There's a miracle and a wonderful way that AI can benefit all kinds of lives moving forward. And yet using that same skill set, using that same technology, it can be in the wrong hands, turned to dark purposes, sinister purposes, or, I mean, it can make us smarter and make us dumber at the same time, because the, the human instinct, and I bet Ernest can testify to this, the human, that there, there is nothing as powerful, it's like a law of physics, uh, laziness, human laziness. If there's something we can do to get by on a modicum, a minimum of effort, we will find it. So God bless AI for the great things it'll do. But man, is it making us in some ways a sillier, stupider society. You know, the one uh, the one question that came up in the last week that I thought was really fascinating is uh, somebody asked Chat GPT, do you think you'd make a good supervisor of humans? <laughs> and, and it gave a list of answers of what it could do well. And then they said, you know, is there anything that you think would be problematic about you being a supervisor for humans? And it gave a list of answers. So that's kind of where I'm curious. Ernest, do you see a future in which the middle manager is an A.I.? Because the middle manager maybe doesn't need to be the the big idea guy or girl uh, and doesn't need to be the doing the work person, but sort of the in-between to just make sure efficiency is maximized. No, (laughs) no, no, no. I hope not. I hope not. Absolutely not. I I think we're getting, you know, somebody said to me the other day, there's a metaphor like you can be so smart that you can get dumb. And I was like, huh? And then I thought about it more and I realized, yes, sometimes people can get so smart that they can get dumb. 
so much interest in technological advancement in a society that can't even feed its population and provide them decent jobs. What are we doing? I think really what it is for me is that I'm for advancing society and technology, but we're getting so experimental to the point where it's almost like people have given up on humanity and they're starting to create substitutes as if the living population isn't already here. I, I just really do believe that we should get to a point where there was when technology becomes a replacement for the humans to which they needed to be a tool. I've always saw technology as a tool, not a substitute for the people that need the tools. The tools are becoming people. And that's not how any of this works. You know what I'm waiting for? I'm waiting for when someone will suggest AI juries because we're just tired of the human foibles oh, that sometimes yield Lord. verdicts that we don't like. <laughs> the AI jury will be able to. Here we go. The, the AI the, is the, always the, available. The AI is not going to lie about its cat it, being it, sick to it get has, out of the jury. It duty. has no inherent bias, you would think. There may be people who advocate it for that reason, but it's also unable by definition to share that kind of human discernment that sometimes makes juries do the wrong thing, but sometimes leads them to do the right thing too. So I, I share Ernest's lament of the sort of the dehumanization that that's, a, that I, I, I may, I will steal that with full attribution if I can. And that is that, that, that all these technological things should be a tool used by real people rather than a substitute for the real people. I think that's spot. Yeah. On. This is, this is one of the things that, uh, you know, Chad GPT actually put out in terms of its advantages, you know, like it's being asked to apply for the job, increased productivity, you would think a computer does pretty well at that uh, time saving because it can automate a lot of routine tasks, fairness and objectivity. One of the top three reasons it gave in favor of itself as a manager was AI can make decisions based on data rather than subjective human biases, which can help ensure fairness and objectivity and employee management. The jury example, I'm not, you know, the chat's not going to be the chat by GPT uh, juror number seven is not going to be swayed by whether it went to grade school with the defendant. <laughs> it's just going to weigh the argument. It's going to measure the pupil dilation and tell you whether that testimony is false. And then it's going to give you the result. I, I, I seriously, I'm horrified by all of this. <laughs> I just think it's, uh, it's, it's, and, and weirdly, lots of people say they would like to work for, you know, they, the advantage they say of working for the AI is, man, it's not going to retaliate against you. It's not going to be swayed by silly stuff. It's only going to judge you on your merit. Uh huh. Well, what it scares me the most about this, and I've seen it even happening in the restaurant industry, is that the technology has gotten so advanced that now people are getting so scared that people are cutting their nose to smite their face. Like they're not embracing any technology because like they're just kind of so a Luddite response like this is so bad. Yeah, you just it's wipe it's it actually off. becoming a big backlash now. I think about there was a conversation around QR code menus, you know, during the pandemic. That was a thing. There's still a thing. But now I've seen restaurants hate it now. So they're trying to go back to the paper menus, which personally I can find a little disgusting. Because um, <laughs> where's that thing been? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's you disgusting. never thought about that until COVID. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm just like, and you know, you just see people passing it around and they're thinking that, oh, if I put some lumen for you, if I like illuminate or whatever, that it's going to help it make it better. But I'm like turned off now, but like restaurants are now going back to it. And in some of these restaurants, like I, I have friends and, you know, they're looking at the, the font is so thin. I love that you can have a, like a, a good, you know, computer. You can just zoom good in and look at good stuff. Job. And what I found is like a good friend of mine said there was a restaurant he went to recently in Philly where they had the QR code menu and they had the paper menu. The QR code menu had all of the options, 
and different prices. But that other menu was very curated for higher prices. So had they not looked on the QR code menu, they would have only thought that they were spending over 20 or more on drinks and food. So it was very, very much advocating you you consume the more. Wow, that is it. Ah, all right. Well, um, capitalism. <laughs> That's it. Right. Well, since we're kind of in this vicinity and talking about the AI and chat GPT, which is, of course, only one example, you know, you've got the others coming out and. Lord knows we're going to have more. That's that's the in 10 years or even two years. That'll be the primitive version. Right. We, we know that's yeah. where we are. My question, uh, sort of a little bit lighter version of this is when you watch a movie, you mentioned Black Mirror already, Mark Davis. When you watch a movie or a TV show, is there a particular AI that's like your vivid example of the horror story gone wrong that scares you the most, perhaps because it's the one that seems most like what we're headed to? Is there an AI in fiction that you oh that's the one that i think of uh mark i'll start with you do you have one in mind what one old school and then one very recent of course and that's the it starts with isaac asimov but the best movie version of this had will smith and that's mm-hmm. iRobot with the robot code where the robots where everybody's supposed to be comforted because the ro- part of the robot code is i will never do anything to harm you i will only do things that are in your best interest which sounds great until you realize that having somebody else determine what's in your best interest is a nightmare which is actually how i view government the second one is a movie that's still out right now scares living daylights out of it that little robot girl megan Megan. i can't even it is so good it's so creepy again but 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 the 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 lesson is the same it's supposed to help us it's supposed to be benign even beneficial until it's not it's always the one that comes offering benefits right Ernest? megan is like chucky but yet ai (laughs) (laughs) you know what's funny is that i was getting really annoyed with the whole megaverse conversation. Remember that megaverse? Mm-hmm. The, and everyone was like, that was the thing for a minute. Everyone was getting scared about going into these virtual realities, but now AI has come back to scare us again. Um, there's a movie that came out in 2014 um, called Ex Machina. Mm-hmm. That, that That's mine because that alternate universe is just, again, it's not megaverse per se, but it's like this idea of this futuristic society and these people, again, revolting and us, fighting for our life. I just, oh, I just cringe at it. I, I don't think we'll get there anytime soon. I think we're just playing with it right now. Kind of like how we played with computers at one point in time, but I don't know. I don't think we're going to get all the way there, but I will say that I'm in downtown Philadelphia and there is a place down, down, not too far from your sushi place. And they have robots serving drinks and food and they wow. have a whole converter belt serving sushi. Yeah. <laughs> and, and how does that and, and I have and, and how does that make us feel? Because I mean the conveyor belt sushi is is very Japanese. You go to Japan, that's, yeah, right. it's, that's it's right. everywhere. Yeah. But yeah. but I but I've I've been to some restaurants in Dallas that think that they're they're gonna just delight the customers by having one of these little moving things come along with your usually just drinks and appetizers. But and, and it's not that they have replaced all the human servers yet. It's just kind of an adjunct, cool, high-tech thing. And for about 30 seconds, I think, wow, this is bad. This is great. This is, I, I love it. But, but then I'm thinking, wait a minute, if, if this taken to, if you extrapolate it out, they, they may not need humans anymore. But this is where council culture kicks in because unions will get mad and the people that are not getting their jobs will get mad. They will boycott these restaurants, we'll divest from these restaurants, and we'll cancel these robotic restaurants, and we won't have to deal with them. 
the case for council culture. There you go. I love it. I love the full circle for me. You know, most of these wind up being terrifying because it's destruction of the human race kind of stuff like Skynet or Terminator or Whopper and war games or whatever. For me, the real terrifying ones are more in line with what you're saying, Mark. I think of Blade Runner. I think of the replicants. And in the beginning, what do we do? We make these artificial people that do everything better than we do. And we use them as, you know, grunt slave off world labor and do the horrible things we don't want to do, which is fine until they get the notion that they're better than us, which they are and smarter than us, which they are and deserve rights, which it becomes hard to argue about. And what's our role in the world when the machines are better than we are at almost everything. And the best we've got is please don't kill us. <laughs> that's, that's the version of this that terrifies me. Ernest Owens, Mark Davis. What a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for the time today. It was really interesting for the debate at Newsweek. I'm Andrew Tallman. We'll see you next time. Being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. (laughs) It's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The Parting Shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.